This is Game Theory, our podcast about competition, strategy, and decision-making, hosted by me, Nick Andrews, and my brother, Chris. In this episode, we break down the bystander effect. Imagine you're in hospitality or food service. You and all your other industry colleagues get off work around 3 a.m. after a busy night. You hit the metro or the subway, pop in your earbuds for some music or a podcast, and you head home. The train is relatively empty, though not completely empty. In the distance, say 30 feet away, at the end of the car, you see a man pestering a woman. He then starts harassing her, and then he assaults her. You and about seven other people see this happen, but it's too far away to tell what's going on. Is she being raped? Do they know one another? So without knowing what to do, you do nothing. Days later, you find out this woman was assaulted right in front of you. You and seven others didn't intervene at all. Well, this is expected, and it's called the bystander effect. It's when people see something bad and do nothing, because there are more people there also doing nothing. But what if that's just a narrative? What if the bystander effect isn't real? In this episode, we break down the bystander effect. <laughs> and welcome to episode 32 of the Game Theory Podcast, a podcast about competition, strategy, and decision-making. For those of you that have never worked the magic of on-demand media, this is not the first time we attempted this intro, but here we are. Alas, we're, we're running into the month of June with a bang, Chris. Things are, things are flowing on all cylinders. It's summer break. That's right. Yeah, we're cruising. We're recording this over the Memorial Day weekend. So, of course, we're taking time to pause and reflect and express some gratitude for those who sacrificed, made the ultimate sacrifice in defense of the country. Uh, I also have taken the time to move recently, Nick. I don't know if you caught that. I got some new uh, new digs behind me, new unit, new setup. I am feeling good. Yes. And I taught you about the touch up my appearance <laughs> feature on Zoom. So you look better than you've ever looked. You look like you've lost well, weight. You look healthy, I, I, younger. Well, hey, look, let's let's save the speculation for another. Let's let the doctors worry about that. Uh, I'm feeling good. I'm feeling good. I guess looking good. I don't know. Thank you. I appreciate the compliment. <laughs> uh, there's no reason not to buy all the way into augmented reality. All those pictures you see on people's dating profiles, nope, they use filters just like Chris and I are using today. Chris, we got a cool topic today. It's like psychological, uh, this sort of weird human behavior stuff we like to dabble into with game theory, but we also wanted to give everyone a heads up. That we'll be in Philly over the 4th of July to play some chess. We haven't decided where we're going to go out drinking. But we when we when we do that, because these tournaments, when you're a grown man and you go to these tournaments, you can get killed by 14-year-olds. What you want to do immediately is binge on food and beer. And that's what we're going to do. So when we figure that out, we'll invite the people. That's right. After losing to a literal child, which has happened far too many times for me to be okay with in my chess career. Mm. Uh, the one thing I like to do is go dunk on them by doing adult things like mm -hmm. drinking. And, of course, Philadelphia is a fantastic food and drink city. So we're going to figure out a place to go. Once we mop up our tears, we'll refresh ourselves with <laughs> right. some nice tasty cocktails. Tons of innovative places, tons of great places to drink. Uh, so we're going to be enjoying that over the 4th of July, uh, over the 4th of July weekend. Right. And um, when we figure out, when we make a plan, we'll announce it on this show. And for any... Of both of our listeners, if you're in Philly over the weekend and you want to run into us and be creepy, you're totally invited to do that. It won't be creepy at all. It'll be in Philly. It'll be it'll be it'll be great. So when we figure that out, we'll let the people know. Um, I also wanted to mention, 
Remember, once we get to 1,000 subscribers on our three main platforms, and there's a chance for you to double subscribe because if you subscribe on Spotify or Apple and you do it on YouTube, once we get to 1,000, we'll do this every week, which is some serious commitment uh, on our part. We have a difficult time texting each other back. That's true. I, 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 I Man, COVID has just killed my response time. Mm-hmm. I, I, I can, I'll respond like weeks later to yeah. something somebody says. So if you text me and I don't get back to you, just know that I'm willfully ignoring you. And uh, you should read into that. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, a thousand subscribers across all platforms. That would be be really exciting. That'd be kind of fun. Yeah, it would be. It's a cool mark for us to hit. So you can watch this in its entirety on YouTube. I know that a lot of podcasts are available to view on Spotify. We are not going to do that because YouTube is much more uh, profitable theoretically, and also it's Google and Spotify stay in your lane. That's that's my opinion. Couldn't agree more. All right. So let's talk about what we're going to be talking about today, which is something called the bystander effect, Chris. And the bystander effect is sort of like a mob mentality, but where the mob's mentality is to do nothing when something bad is happening. This was kind of created and described with a super famous case that happened in New York City to a woman named Kitty Genovese, or Kitty Genovese, excuse me, who was... I believe, raped and murdered. And the reports around this at the time were that some two dozen people overheard this happening and just listened and watched it happen uh, for hours. And then none of them intervened. And as a result of that, the psychologists coined this term, the bystander effect, which is just because something's happening in public, it's entirely possible that nobody will do anything. Yeah, so the bystander effect is one of those things, like, I, I think, I don't know if it's like a universal thing, but I, I know a lot of people, and myself included, just like to kind of think of the world in terms of, like, effects named after people or, like, named after things. So, like, the bystander effect is, like, an identifiable phenomenon. Right. Uh, I think it's super cool. Uh, and, and it seems like one of those things that, like, somebody feels like they heard about once, like, a long time ago. Like, oh, yeah, when something bad is happening, people don't respond if they're in a group, and so it's actually better if you... If something happens to you privately as opposed to publicly, uh, the basic, I guess, baseline of the bystander effect is that individuals are less likely to specifically offer help to a victim when other people are present uh, and if something is playing itself out in real time. Uh, Situations happen all the time and they happen really fast and sometimes it's hard to figure out exactly what the right thing to do is. And so the bystander effect is this social psychological phenomenon where people just kind of freeze and they think, well, the right thing to do is either out of my hands or it's unclear or the right thing to do is just not get involved because this isn't my monkeys, not my circus. Mm -hmm. And people just don't offer help uh, when it's necessary. And the, uh, the case that you're talking about is, is kind of the famous one that, that really kicked off uh, this, this phenomenon. So according to the New York Times, uh, in March of 1964, for more than a half an hour, 38 respectable law-abiding citizens in Queens watched a killer stalk and stab a woman in three separate attacks in Kew Gardens. Not one person telephoned the police during the assault. And... From that incident, from this famous documented case of Kitty Genovese, who was 28 years old at the time and who was stalked and killed, uh, we've developed this this social psychological phenomenon that can kind of be observed in day-to-day life. Yeah, and it's, it's one of those things where, and this is just my take on it, I guess, um, it's one of those things where if, if you didn't know that it was a thing, you might not know that it was a thing. Like, it's it's... Once it's been observed, it's easy to observe. Like, oh, this is just the bystander effect. And there have been some pretty famous examples. One, incredibly recently in 2021, something like this happened. But when you're looking for the bystander effect, like, oh, well, this is the bystander effect. People saw this thing happen 
and they didn't do anything. But when you dive deeper and deeper and deeper into it, you find that that's A, not always the case, and B, were they morally, ethically, or legally obligated to do something? It doesn't, it's not always as clean cut as it would appear. The, the case that I'm talking about, and we'll get into some of, of Kitty's story a little later and the various aspects of, of what wasn't true there. But the most recent one to, sh- to give everyone an example of how often this kind of happens more than you think, there was a woman who was sexually assaulted, harassed, and raped on public transit in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania in 2021. And When this happened, everyone said, well, this happened in public. People saw it happening and no one intervened to stop them. It's like, oh, well, this is textbook. This is the bystander effect. Yeah, uh, really tragic case that happened there. Uh, Do you you have the details of that? Do you have like the the, like? Reporting, yeah, of course. Like the reporting about it. I guess. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I could. We let's let, let's look into this. So it's the, they call it the Jane Doe of Philadelphia, and that is because sexual assault victims have different sets of uh, privacy rights. Of course, uh, it was on October thirty thirteenth of twenty twenty one, right in the middle of football season. I remember uh, as a former Philadelphian, following all of the things on Instagram and Twitter for a long time, all of the different media sources. So when this happened, it was a huge deal, and we were, my wife and I, were talking about it for a while. So uh, she was harassed and raped by a rider on a train in Philly. It was uh, just a, like a com- commuter rail sort of train. Uh, there were several bystanders, and they, they said they witnessed the, the incident, but none of them intervened. So when everyone found out the detail that no one intervened, everyone's original uh, response was that this is the bystander effect. However, some of them were recording the assault on their phones. Some of them didn't alert authorities. Uh, they didn't alert the, uh, the on-duty cop at the time. And the surveillance video from SEPTO shows this person being assaulted, harassed, and eventually raped. And it shows also passengers knowing uh, what was happening at the time. So the Delaware County District Attorney uh, refuted this claim that bystanders were filming the assault, countering that many of the bystanders may not have understood what they were seeing. So it's, it's a situation where the difference between the kitty thing and this is that I think that the, the argument that they're making in, in the Philadelphia incident is that nobody really knew what was going on. They couldn't tell that that's what was happening. And there's a lot of weird shit that goes on on, on public transit. You see, if you follow accounts in, in New York City and in D.C., weird stuff happens on those trains. I don't, I'm not making excuses for any behavior one way or another. But people didn't know what they were looking at, which I, I think is sort of when we start to dive into the human behavior of this, one of the, the weirder parts of this. So it's not as cut and dry as a bunch of citizens watched this happen and sort of actively participated by not doing anything. That's not what happened at all. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's pretty remarkable. You know, according to the NBC News reporting about it uh, from October 2021, uh, it went on for like 40 minutes. Mm-hmm. This, this was happening for a really long time. And, you know, there, of course, there are a lot of variables at play here for considering how people should have responded or whether they responded in the right way or whether they even understood what they were looking at. And you know, the, the bystander effect, like you said, isn't like a cut and dry thing. It's not the case where, okay, if there's a group of two or more people and something bad is happening, then nobody's going to do anything. You know, a lot of other factors are at play here. Like, for example, the size of the group makes a big difference on whether people are more or less willing to to stand up and, and say or do something. Uh, the cohesiveness of the group, is this actually like a group of people or is it just a bunch of individuals who happen to be in the same place at the same time watching the same event? Uh, is the situation clear or is it not clear? Are you interfering in somebody's personal business or are you tasked with 
kind of intervening to, to change the outcome of, of what's happening. Uh, and there's the question of like preservation of beliefs, like how strong are people's beliefs about whatever it is that they're seeing and how strong is their sense of responsibility to kind of protect what they, what they think and what they have influence over versus what are we going to, where, where we draw the line with what we don't understand and shouldn't get involved with. Yes. So, and let, let's get into the human element of this. Let's get, do a little bit more free flowing stuff because you and I have our takes on psychology and we have our takes on what science is and what it isn't and theories and you know, liberal arts and, and, and whatnot. So I think that there's another interesting case of the bystander effect of, for an individual that happened recently. It was an incredibly notable situation, and, but it wasn't a group think. So we're, we're, let's differentiate between the mob mentality part of this and just the humanistic part of this. So when the Los Angeles Rams won the Super Bowl, during the parade, Matthew Stafford, the quarterback of the Los Angeles Rams, was notably wasted. He was walking he, around. He was, he was so hammered. Hammered. He was, and they all are. I mean, Tom Brady, when he won the Super Bowl, they almost threw the Lombardi Trophy into the channel. They, like Gronkowski had to catch it. Like they were wasted. So he's wasted. They're on the stage. They are, they are uh, you know, cheering on their fan that showed up for, for the parade, the Los Angeles Rams. <laughs> There was a, a woman who was there, and she was a contractor of the team. Her name, I believe, was Kelly Smiley. Is that right? Yes, it is. Kelly Smiley was there taking photographs. She was a contract photographer for the team. She fell off of the stage where she was photographing people, and she broke a bone in her back. It was a terrible incident. And in the video, very famously, Matthew's wife, Kelly, also named Kelly, was also wasted. She runs over to the stage and is like, oh, my God, this is, this is bad. We're going to get help. And Matthew sees it, and he's like, nope, I'm out. He did the exact same thing that a bystander would do. Now, Matthew, we know, A, wasn't in his right mind to make decisions, True. which is part of the, you know, that's a legal thing. And also, the immediate response from the public is partially because he's rich and famous, but the immediate response from the public is, dude, you got to help. You have to help. Now, the question is, Chris, whether you are just a passenger with their earbuds on in a train or whether you're Matthew Stafford and this woman fell on her own, like nobody assaulted her, do they have to help? Is it the smartest decision to help? And that's where we get into this weird gray area of like going down there and starting a fight doesn't necessarily make things better for everybody. Yeah, it's true. I mean, I'm trying to imagine being in the position of a guy who is absolutely blitzed, celebrating the biggest accomplishment of his entire professional career. Right. Probably one of the greatest moments of this guy's entire life. Right. Something kind of confusing, kind of startling, unexpected happens, and you got to help. You got to interrupt what you're doing. I, I, I think understanding that a sober person and a responsible person probably would jump in to help. Somebody who is thinking about others before themselves probably would stop what they're doing and get involved to, like, give assistance to somebody who's just fallen and injured herself. Sure. Uh, but, you know, you understand the human impulse to just want to withdraw from that. Like, nope, I'm not involved. This is not my monkeys. This is not my circus. I'm not going to, I'm not going to insert myself into whatever the situation is. And there again, we get back to this like self-preservation instinct, this like desire to kind of stay within the bounds of whatever the crowd is. That is, you're separated. It's kind of like a mental construct between like what's happening on the stage, like where the event is and what's going on versus being in the audience and wanting to kind of be protected from from having to be involved there and taking on some kind of responsibility that could come back around later on. I mean, you, you mentioned legal consequences. It, it's I, I think it's worth noting that like, because of like this bystander effect, this known kind of phenomenon that people uh, bandy about in, in, in kind of popular imagination, you know, that, that affects the way that 
emergency responders are told to like train to prepare for an emergency situation. Uh, when I was in college, I took a, uh, a CPR, like first aid class to learn how to you know, administer CPR and got like the little Red Cross certification so that I could like legally do that. Uh, and of course, there are even there are even more uh, legal responsibilities there. So I'm not giving anybody legal advice. Do not take this and and run with it as like, oh, yeah, I get the card. I'm, I'm certified to like go help anybody anywhere. Uh, but as part of that training, one of the things that people who are administering CPR are taught to do right away is ask if the person is okay. And if they don't respond or if they say, no, I'm not okay, the next task is to identify a single person in the area, somebody. And if there's nobody around, it's incumbent upon the person administering help mm. to instruct this person, dial 911. Like, don't just shout, somebody get help. Don't just shout, somebody call 911. Uh, the... the the training is to identify one specific individual, look them in the eye, and say, you, dial 911. And the thinking is that that will kind of cut through this bystander effect, this, like, hesitance to get involved, this uncertainty about what I'm seeing, what the roles and responsibilities are here. And, you know, I, I think it's just really interesting that we have this this social psychological desire as human beings to kind of protect ourselves from whatever right. is happening in, in sort of the arena and recede back into the audience. And... Uh, but it's also really interesting if you dive deeper into the bystander effect that, Nick, I don't know that all of this really holds up to close scrutiny. So uh, um, as a member of the, 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 uh, the fourth estate. Oh, the fourth estate. <laughs> the fourth mm. estate. That's, uh, for those of you that don't know, that is journalism, the media. Our first right, the God, the God Bill of Right, right. That's right. The press, speech, we are important. I feel like there was another one in there too. I don't recall. There were well, a couple, details. I think, right? There's God talking, getting together with your friends, talking in public. I, I forget. Regardless, the media have a tendency to blow things like this out of proportion and fit things into a narrative. Narrative bias is an enormous thing. It happens all of the time. I can give plenty of examples. Uh, one great example is uh, when something really woke or forward thinking happens in the state of Utah, it's not often reported on by, say, the Democratic media or the Republican media because it doesn't fit with the Republican narrative and it doesn't fit with the Democratic narrative. And as a result of that, everyone's like, well, we don't recognize what to do with this here. So no one cares. We're not going to do anything about it. In the 70s, when this Kitty Genovese thing was about to happen, New York City was notably aggressively well, well, violent. And just quick, quick 60s, correction here. Excuse me. Yes. Yep. 60s. So in the 60s, yeah, 60s, 70s, and 80s, there are many cool Netflix documentaries about it. New York was insanely violent. It was run by uh, organized crime. There were muggings. It was gross. It was dirty. Very scary place. Now, when you hear that New Yorkers allowed a woman to be attacked and murdered... That fits the narrative of national media. And as a result of that, anytime something like this just completely captivates the, uh, a region or the country, we're actually in that moment now with a mass shooting at a, an elementary school in Texas. Whenever something captivates the attention of the media and the nation at the same time, you get a lot of people thinking really deeply about it. And when that happens, you are... You know, these kind of theories like the bystander effect are published and they're thought about and they're agreed upon and they're observed and they're observed retrospectively, which is poor science. It's actually not science when you just do it without asking the question ahead of time. So when this happened, they're like, A, hey, look at what New Yorkers don't care about humans, A, and B, 
here's a new thing for all of us to obsess over how scary New York is. The, the, the academia ran with it, and then we came up with this. But as you dive deeper, Chris, you found out that that is, was not how it went down that October night. Was it October? I think it was October. Yeah. 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 The, the, there's been a lot of a lot of intense research into the bystander effect. You know, obviously, if something like this happens, people obsess over it. They want to dissect it and understand it. You know, we we have this like obsession in America with these true crime stories, uh, these like right. trailblazing podcasts and TV shows that talk intensively about like true crime happenings. And and the the, the thing to understand about that is that the point of diving into true crime like that. The point isn't to reconstruct an exact history. The point is to tell a story. Right. You know, I, I, I've used this, this kind of on stage versus in the audience imagery because I think that's a good way of understanding like our interpretations of, of when, when bad things happen is, you know, what is, what's the story that goes through here? What's the narrative and what are people's incentives for wanting to construct the narrative in a certain way or twist it in a certain way? Uh, how do we best understand the events? Well, it's, it's through the creation of, of these kind of stories. And, and you know, you're exactly right about Kitty Genovese. People want to understand things that make sense to them and people, right. people, people support what they understand. You know, there, there's the need to like confirm there, there's the bias where people confirm what they already believe using true information. Like, ah, oh, yes, of course that makes sense about New York. People wouldn't help there because it's a nasty crime ridden cesspool. And, uh, yes, I understand New York in this case super well. Now, um, people want things to make sense, even if they aren't necessarily, uh, true things. And the recent research that's gone into the bystander effect shows that actually uh, it is not as prevalent or strong or meaningful or even as true as we actually think. Right. So in 2007, I believe it was one of the publications, it was psychology or the American psychologist. They dove into the facts that were reported in official reports by the police and by detectives, which if you trust uh, police and detectives in New York City, that, uh, that, that's the source that we have for here. And they compared that to what was reported in the public media and, and all of the editorials and whatnot that were part of sh- uh, shaping this bystander effect narrative. They found that the media was all based on stuff that wasn't true. It was, it was exaggerated. So first, it was reported that there were 38 witnesses. And this was reported by the New York Times, one of the five or six really reputable Western society periodicals, that there were 38 witnesses that watched the stabbing. When um, American psychologists went back and looked at it, they're like, well, no, there were definitely not 38 people. They said that the police were definitely called at least once during the attack. That also contradicts what was reported in the New York Times. And they said that the there were many bystanders who overheard the attack but could not actually see the event. And as a result of that, it just cut through this entire New York Times said that many people like basically pulled up a chair and watched it happen. Bullshit. All of it was all of that was bullshit. Just completely made up. And the, and the New York Times, some 50 years later, had to, to apologize, essentially. In 2016, they said they called it flawed, which is like oh, our bad. And we'll talk about it in a minute, but it really screwed up her family. As like, as like when people write in the passive voice, like, oh, mistakes were made. Uh, who are or you referring it was to? decided. Like, does a lot of work there, passing off the responsibility. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, uh, you know, of course, you know, leave it to professional writers to use that kind of language <laughs> to make it seem yes. like, oh, this is accountability, but we're going to go ahead and pin it on somebody else anyway. Very yeah, creative. Yeah. I know. I, I love that. I think there's an example of... Um, there's a head coach with mixed ethnicity right now in the NFL, and 
at his opening press conference, he uh, there was a a, a a writer at Deadspin who said that this this guy is taking opportunities from from black coaches and like well, actually his his father is black, his mother is white, and he's he's a minority. So perhaps apologizing for that would be good. And then they just called the reporting um, lacking in facts. Like yeah, yeah, it uh-huh. was lacking in facts. It was definitely lacking in facts. So yeah, yeah, not not a lot of accountability from the New York Times, but that is um, most papers are like that. Regardless, the point of, of this, Chris, is that they made this up, and as a result of that, all of these editorials and this theory was based on something that wasn't true. And when we look back on the quote unquote bystander effect, there's no real science to it. Yeah, it's it's based on kind of fabrications. It's based on stories that people developed using a lot of true information. I mean, Kitty Genovese actually was stalked and killed. People actually did witness the event, and there were people who did nothing to intervene. Uh, But there's also a healthy dose of untrue information there. But the, the story, the narrative that runs through this series of events that makes sense to people, that confirms kind of pre-existing impressions or beliefs, or it supports beliefs that people want to be true. And because of that, it sticks in people's mind as like a cognitive construct. And people use that as a lens to view the world. And the unfortunate thing is that when you use a lens that's based on fabrications or untrue things, but you do it because it makes sense, then you can start to like misunderstand other things about how the world works and use untrue information to guide your understanding of of the events that have taken place. And Nick, it wasn't just the the Kitty Genovese story that that didn't stand up to intense scrutiny. There have actually been scientific studies about the bystander effect kind of by itself in in the real world. Like, okay, so theoretically people don't intervene because of all these factors at play like social preservation and social desirability and confirmation bias and whatever else. But in point of fact, that does not stand up to scientific scrutiny. Uh, go on. Let's find out. Well, the first thing I want to bring it back to the Matthew Stafford case. Um, we'll call it the case. Dun 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 dun. dun, dun. <laughs> the, the case of Matthew. Stafford. By the way, have you seen that commercial? Yes, uh, and I want to say one? that as a Lions fan, that guy quit on us more than Calvin Johnson or Barry Sanders ever did, and he can fuck right off with trying to be a member of our fan base and their quote unquote fan base. Goodbye. Yeah, I mean, it, like, look. Respect the man. Appreciate uh, his yes. services for giving entertainment to the sports Correct. fans of the city of Detroit. Not the quarterback anymore, guys. No, like, grow up. Move yeah, on. and also, well, what's happening here, I liken it to this. He, we were married, and then he left us for someone significantly hotter, but is now also still trying to come over all the time. Yeah, no. and and you know we just we just got to accept the fact that like we're <sighs> the ugly, undesirable spouse in this case, and. It, we were we were always doomed to become the ex. Correct. As but, well, just really quick, Chris. I'm going to finish this. <laughs> it is time for uh, us as as Detroit fans and as people in the bystander effect. We are in the montage portion of our relationship with football. We are in the get off your ass and like improve a little bit. Do you like that? So like back that. to back to the Matthew Stafford case. When you watch this person fall off the ledge, sober or not, like if you direct someone to call nine one one, which is the training that you said is that's the move, right? I don't want someone who's not trained touching someone with a back injury ever, ever, ever. Like, don't want to make this. So what if, 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 for example, if he's going to intervene, there is a significant chance that he can make it so much worse for the person and that that person fell. They weren't being attacked by someone. But looking at the, at the Kitty Genovese story and at the, the, the Philly Jane Doe story, if that person's packing heat, like this is going to become a, a, you're not going to make it better for the person that's being assaulted unless you know exactly what you're doing. Right. Yeah. There's, there's a risk that 
your lack of intervention is actually the best case scenario because your intervention could make things worse. You could be uh, inadequately prepared. You could be just incapable. You could be outmatched uh, right. in some unknowing way. And uh, because of that, while people want direct involvement, while people want the bad situation to go away, which is perfectly, I mean, obviously everybody wants that. It may not always be the case that bystander intervention would have resulted in a better or, or even a different outcome. Correct. And, you know, but, but that's really interesting because the, the human desire, the urge to help more than to preserve one's own sense of safety uh, actually kind of bears itself out in, in real world examples. So Nick, the scientific scrutiny that I was talking about, yes. uh, I'm referring to a study from the Netherlands Institute for the ah. study of crime and law enforcement. The title is bystander effect in street disputes disproved. Uh, this is a really interesting study and this was from uh, 2019. Uh, so just like three years ago, wow. uh, there was this kind of groundbreaking study you know, the, I, and I'm just gonna gonna read a little bit here from from that report. You know, for 50 years, psychologists have assumed a bystander effect. So they're starting by saying this is an assumption based on like kind of the fabrication that we've learned about uh, Kitty Genovese. In an emergency situation, the crowd looks, but nobody intervenes. The higher the number of bystanders, the more anonymous we feel, and the smaller the chance that somebody intervenes. However, uh, Marie Rosencrantz, uh, Marie Rosencrantz Lindegard, sorry, oh. uh, said that's not what we found. She led a large international study on this topic, mm -hmm. and she said, on the contrary, we continually see bystanders who take action and intervene. This is a highly radical discovery and completely different than a completely different outcome than theory predicts. Uh, so what this team, what Lindegard's team did was study 219 disputes that were recorded on security cameras, and in almost every case, Bystanders intervened to defuse the situation. They got in between people who were actively fighting and separated the two of them. They stood between people who were like about to start fighting. Uh, and and there's this, that reminds me of this uh, this famous video. If you Google a snack man or maybe like snack man subway, uh, uh -huh. there's a, a, a close up video of somebody shooting on their cell phone. People who are in like a really heated dispute on this on the street. It looks like a New York subway train or something. And they're like about to get to it. They're like, you know, doing the chest bump, you know, in your face kind of deal. And out of nowhere, this guy comes sliding into the frame. He just like casually sidles between these people. And he's just like munching on chips, just <sighs> enjoying his train ride. He knows exactly what's going on, but he doesn't look at either of them. He doesn't speak to either of them. He's just eating his chips, gets in between these people. And all of a sudden the tension is like diffused. Mm -hmm. Everybody in the audience of what was happening knew what was that, what the guy was doing. The two people involved kind of like were disarmed. They just didn't expect some random guy who had no business with their beef to <laughs> like just physically insert himself into the situation. And he was just so calm and collected, just munching away. And he, he was like a hero for a little bit. He had his 15 minutes of fame on the internet. You know, snack man saves the day. And that's what Linda Gard and her team discovered through their research of these 219 cases. Almost all the time in the real world, people will overcome the urge to like preserve their sense of safety or their desire to like not be involved in a, in a bad situation. And they'll step in and intervene. And most of the time people are interested in diffusing the situation, not identifying somebody who's right and somebody who's wrong and like joining sides. They want the yeah. tension to stop, not like the fight to be won by the right side. Right. And that, I believe Chris, that research is just, it was nine out of 10 times an incident takes place. And this is, this is a little bit more scientific. Nine out of 10 times, there is some sort of intervention by a, by a bystander. Now, 
I also want to dive into like what constitutes intervention. So this is a, I want to call it a blog post from the conversation. And it's about the people that watched George Floyd get murdered by uh, Derek Chauvin. Now, this was recorded on a lot of cell phones. Famously, it went viral on Twitter and you can watch this person lose his life and be murdered by a police officer immediately. Now, this is a little bit different because Derek Chauvin was a uniformed police officer. So attempting to defuse the situation physically would have been immediately a crime, perhaps a felony, I think. I'm not 100% sure about the law in Minnesota, but doing that would have been illegal for sure. So if in that moment, is recording it on a cell phone the correct move is kind of how everything happened. And we all know the wake of the protests and the riots and whatnot, but the, the recording of the cell phone, I think counts in that situation. It's kind of an interesting thought. Now for me in the Philadelphia incident as well, they were these, these passengers were accused of recording it on their cell phone that turned out not to be true, but if they had been recording it on their cell phone, that would have been evidence, right? Like if you're not a hundred percent sure of your safety or in the case of George Floyd, Interview intervening is a crime. Would we count filming the situation? Because in the example you just cited, the guy that ate his chips diffused the situation physically, but the person who recorded it was also right there with evidence. Yeah, I mean, obviously the members of uh, of the groups that are involved in whatever the altercation is, uh, th- that makes a huge difference in what the appropriate response is and whether people are likely to kind of intervene in one way or another. You know, personally, in, in, in the case of the murder of George Floyd, I think the right thing to do was probably to just gather as much evidence and information as possible and make it public like, hey, this kind of thing happens. Police right. officers do this. Uh, you know, there, there's, no, there's no way of knowing, I think, you know, even if some some civilian had just like thrown himself onto you know, on Derek Chauvin and, and gotten his knee off of George Floyd's back, uh, off of his neck, uh, whether that, you know, that person would have been arrested, whether he would have been injured himself, uh, whether right. Derek Chauvin wouldn't have gone back to kind of continue pinning down the, the, the perpetrator of the alleged crime. Uh, and it it's difficult to know what that reaction would have been because uh, the, the guy is a uniformed police officer who is clearly abusing his power. Um, and you know, so it's, it's, it's hard to know what else, what the, what better response there could be than gathering information and then right. taking it to the, to the justice system where justice eventually was uh, meted out, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, there, there are a few interesting things about this, this study out of the Lindegaard group. Um, there are a few cases like examples of, of where like the identities of the people involved uh, has a direct result on the outcome. Like, mm. so for example, uh, in the case of arguments between couples, people who are obviously like together with one another, people are a lot less likely to, to intervene. Um, it's it it's hard to know where the line is between like oh this is a couple just fighting versus you know this is somebody who's like abusing somebody else and you know, and and how big is the scene that we're making here like you know not my circus not my monkeys not my circus right um, so right. that that makes people less likely to intervene uh, also uh, unfortunately this uh, this like most social phenomena has a uh, it has a sex linked uh, outcome sure uh, so according to the study uh, in cases of fights between women bystanders do not take action as quickly. Um, the, yeah. the, the group theorizes that, you know, maybe people as in general take women less seriously because they think we think they're less dangerous. Um, but in, in practice, uh, women do uh, altercations between women are uh, less likely to have intervention occur. Uh, and, you know, you can you can speculate for whatever the reason that yeah, is. But, no, but that... the point is that the, the identities of the people who are involved in an altercation uh, seem to have some effect on whether on the bystand, the alleged bystander effect. And uh, in, in the case of uniformed police officers, I think, 
you know, there's uh, obviously some legal implications, but certainly there's like a preformed group identity among police officers. And so when you start to think about what makes people group think, uh, literally wearing the same uniform at the same time uh, can cause like some psychological insulation and make it difficult for people who are standing by to identify the right thing and act on it. Yeah, and like so, first of all, the 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 sex portion of what you just said um, that like I that for, that does not surprise me in the least. For take that for what it's worth, but that just sounds correct. I you know I I don't like that totally makes sense. I'm also into really I've I've been really into hidden camera videos where they two actors will be cast to have a physical altercation in public. And when the man is the aggressor, people intervene very frequently if it's physical. But if the woman is the aggressor physically, nobody intervenes. Um, the other th- the other thing I find really interesting is that people are really quick to intervene when the person is a small child. Uh, they're very quick to be like, "Where's your mom? Let's call someone." That which is nice. I, I that that makes me feel quite a bit better. But I think that that's an interesting part of this too. Like if you can measure up immediately, like, okay, this is a marital or a a significant other spat, like. That's up to you because those are complicated situations. You don't know what's abuse and what's just like a scene, what's just a bad day for a couple. So that makes total sense to me. The other thing that I think is really interesting, what do you think about this as a bystander effect? We know that angel shots and halo shots are a real thing that some bartenders know about. Are you aware of these? No. I don't know. It sounds like... uh uh, it, it sounds like either like a fantasy video game thing <laughs> or like uh, like creative ways to like like a new Snapchat filter or something. <laughs> no, it is definitely not that. So I forget what they're called everywhere. They might be. I want to. I just want to make sure. So it's called an angel shot, and an angel shot is for most bartenders at good bars will know about it. An angel shot straight up, angel shot on the rocks, an angel shot with like lime or twist. Their code between a woman and the bartender and it's the woman asking for help uh, from the bartender to call for a ride to be escorted to just be kept an eye on and I, I learned about this by diving into a true crime podcast called crime junkie super famous don't need to tell anybody about that crazy famous where there's something called the the double fireball game and it's just a really creepy way that people were kind of luring women into places and following them around and maybe drugging them really creepy stuff but through that, I found that bartenders are often far more aware of things like that than, than people are led on to believe. And so what they do often is they don't make a scene and they don't like intervene. They just take a moment to quietly be like, hey, that guy comes here all the time. We don't feel comfortable about him here. Just thought you should know we're aware of this guy and he's here. So I think that is kind of a strange, like they're certainly not obligated to do that. Uh, especially if the woman is a, a grown adult, can make her own decisions. But if they go out of their way to say that kind of thing, what, what are your thoughts on that? And the, the idea of angel shots is cool, and I'm I'm glad I know about that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I, I do think the, uh, the the fireball thing that you're talking about, I, I'm pretty sure that's an urban myth because because the, the the idea there is that people will go to this bar, like like men will lure women to a bar, and they will have already like ordered fireball shots or like what's right. what's the it's 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 supposed to be some like kind of sinister almost like a moral panic type of thing that people were allegedly using to like draw women to bars so that they could be like kidnapped into sex trafficking or whatever but i, I i'm pretty sure that's an urban myth yeah i i don't, i know that it's been like blogged about and discussed about like i haven't followed up on whether or not that's true i know that the, the plot is this someone is going to go meet someone there 
and they're late, so they tell the girl to order two shots of a specific kind of liquor, and that's sort of a signal to the person who's waiting for them what's there. So this person that they're going to go allegedly meet never existed, and the idea is that the person who was on the other end of the phone the whole time is the person who's just happens to be there at the bar. So like they have these two shots of fireball, so they take them, and they're like, it's a signal, like, this is the person. Now, I know that this has been reported. Um, I don't know if it's ever been followed up on. I do know that the crime junkie people had... Uh, I think it was an FBI person as a follow-up on an interview that said this is a known thing that does happen. It's just a way to signal to the person who's there which of the girls he's meeting. But who knows? I mean, I don't know. Yeah, I th- I th- that reads like one of those things. It's like, oh, yeah, this fits a narrative of like how creative people can sure. be. So because it fits the narrative, it must be true. I, I, sure. I, I, don't, I don't know. Uh, uh, the, the the opinion of this podcaster is that that is a crock of shit. But the idea of <laughs> uh, of like an angel shot or like some kind of communication with a bartender, like you need to get out of a dangerous situation. Like I like that. Yeah, it gives right. it gives a, a, a nice uh, nice little safety net. Uh, Nick, you mentioned earlier there was like a like TV shows. Yes, uh, that kind of take advantage of the bystander effect or examine it in some way. Uh, there was actually a show on primetime uh, on ABC uh, hosted by John Quinones. It was called uh, Primetime. What would you do? Uh, and in that case, uh, it's not obviously it's not scientific. The number one thing that people who are producing TV shows want is viewership. So it was based <laughs> on entertainment first. But it was right. a, it was a hidden camera scenario show where they would have some kind of scene set up and actors would play it out. Uh, normally, the the situations were not like emergencies. They weren't like fights. Uh, instead, they were more like racism or homophobia or somebody shoplifting or like stealing stuff on a test or whatever the case is. And the question is, what would you do if you were in this situation? And so they film on a hidden camera real people coming in to see this scene that the actors are going to play out and figure out what they would kind of do. You can find clips of that on YouTube pretty easily. Uh, some cases are a little bit more entertaining than others. Some are a little bit more uplifting than others. Sure. I think sure. They, they capture some unfortunate moments, like when somebody will come in and say like, oh yeah, I'm actually also am a racist and I'm glad to see you being a racist in public too. It gives me courage. <laughs> they, they capture some moments like that. Great. Really not good. But that was supposed to be kind of a look at the bystander effect right, right, and right, right. a way to make entertainment out of it. But the fact remains, in the real world, in real world examples, people overcome the alleged bystander effect. They'll step out of the audience and onto the stage and they'll intervene to do the right thing when possible. And the right thing to do is diffuse, get the situation calmed down and separate people who are in conflict. So narrative catapulting, which is what I like to call it. When you see a story happen as a journalist in a, like a small to medium market and you're like, Oh yeah, here's a pitch right down the middle. This is going to be a narrative. People are going to really like to see this. Narrative catapulting is incredibly dangerous because lying is bad. So Kitty Genovese's brother uh, has recently made a documentary examining why no one helped his sister. And because it, it has this movie, The Witness is what it's called. It, it follows her brother to investigate why no one helped. And when he found out that that is not true, it completely changed his entire worldview. His worldview is how can humanity, how can my New York, my New Yorkers, my brothers have done this to my sister? He never investigated it. And they started looking closer and closer and closer. And the documentary is really delicate and beautiful. And it's, it's incredibly well reviewed and it's touching. I think it won some awards. It's called the witness, but 
this bullshit from the New York Times and all the subsequent editorials drove into this guy's mind that all humans are bad. No one would ever help. Look at no one cared about your sister. No one cares now. They pitch this narrative and it takes off. You see all these examples all over the world in Myanmar and Richmond and, and Philly. And you're like, this is terrible. Well, when this guy starts looking into it and he finds out all of this, 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 this narrative catapulting really damaged this guy's life who had lost his sister to a violent crime. Yeah, I I I got to watch that documentary. I actually didn't know he did that. Yeah, I mean it's really and like the the reason it's a good documentary is not just because it goes into the the BS. It's also because it follows him on his personal journey to like self-discovery on like this is not fair. So whenever you see whenever whenever there's a story this is just me speaking as a, as a journalist, as I use air, air quotes. Whenever you see a story that fits narratives too per- personally, always be like, okay, yeah, that makes sense. But look deeper into it because it might, it might be being twisted a little bit to make things seem a little bit more hysterical than they need to be. And they're doing that to get clicks. They're doing that to get viewers. They're doing that because it's easy. It makes sense. Everybody will want it. It fits into what we know to be true. And that's where it becomes dangerous. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the, the, the game theory sort of takeaways from this discussion of the bystander effect are kind of two-pronged here. And I think the first one is learn how to read and understand reporting with reasonable skepticism. If something seems too convenient or too concise or too well-crafted to be true, there's a chance that there's more to the story that you don't understand. It's th- This is not to say that we think you should just distrust all media or all reporting and right. only listen to us or <laughs> that we're, that we're somehow definitely like don't do that. Yeah. Yeah. Please don't ever do that. Don't ever listen to us. Yeah, ever. definitely don't do but that. I think it's important to understand that people like stories, people understand stories and people try to interpret events that are difficult to comprehend through crafting narratives. And it, it's, it's less like a fact compilation and more like weaving together some kind of story that has a beginning an arc and an ending and understanding what those stories are, who is telling those stories, what what more information could be necessary to fully understand the situation. I think that's that's really, really important. I mean, anytime you're trying to make a decision based on information, you want as clear and comprehensive a picture as possible. And just blindly listening to one narrative uh, may actually come back to bite you because that narrative may not actually be in accordance with facts or it may be based on somebody's agenda. And it's important to learn to understand media with with a healthy degree of skepticism. Yes. Trust, kind of trust, but verify, uh, is is probably our our takeaway. And then I think the other the other prong of this, which we can talk about in in a little bit more detail, is how how to be a good bystander. I think yeah, there yeah. there's a lot to think about there. So the the bystander effect may or may not be kind of like a true thing. It's not like oh man. I would intervene, but you know, the bystander effect is stopping me. No. <laughs> yeah. like there, there are good ways to like be a responsible civic member of society. And I think we can, we can talk about that in a little more detail. Yeah, I think, I think so too. And like, I don't have any, like my, my move, whenever I see something going down and I've, I've never, that's, what's interesting about the bystander effect too, is it's not something you, you don't choose to be in the bystander effect. It's something that is thrust upon you, which is like sort of why it's, semi-excusable like no one elects to be on the train when this stuff is happening so you can't possibly know what you would do because you didn't choose to be there that's that's a that's an interesting part of this my move when i've seen fights in public and stuff is just to kind of i use rapid eye contact between people involved so that they're aware that i'm paying attention that's just always been what i've done like i'm i'm letting you know that i'm not ignorant to this it's it's more of like a self-defense mechanism to be like i don't involve me but it's also like i'm paying attention i'm i'm here mentally with you 
I notice I'm noticing what's happening. That's yeah, been that, my yeah, that kind technique. Of, yeah, that, that that that's a good way to think about it. Like that kind of implicit communication that yeah, like okay, like you know that I know that you know that I know that I know that you know. Yes, and et cetera, uh, et cetera. On your uh, journalism point, Chris, I'll help you get out of there. This is an old journalism. I guess we'll call it a tenant, and it's uh, the way it works is, what is news? Dog is bites news? man. Dog bites man is not news. Man bites dog is news. Someone being assaulted and it being loud enough to be heard in New York City, where everyone lives on top of each other, is not news. Thirty-seven people listen to someone be murdered violently. That's news. And all of that's a sudden, you're news. thinking to yourself, like, ah, okay, just. Be aware of their games. It's, this, is, this, is, this is America in the year of our Lord. People are out there to make money. So you got to be careful when they're... If, if you don't know what the product is, you're the product. And they want you to be there. That's true. According to Psychology Today, how to be an active bystander, treat the situation as if you're the first and only witness. There Take you go. a simple action. Shout, hey, what's going on? Or even lie, according to the Psychology Today. Say the police are coming. Uh, and this might embolden others to, to take action as well. Or do what Nick does and just kind of... Make eye contact with people who could be committing crimes or trying to ruin somebody else's life. It could diffuse the situation. It could. And that's, that's a good way to be. A, I think that's the theme of this show, Chris, is be present. Just be, be present. present. Be a Best player. Best advice I ever got. Be where you are. Be where you are. That's a good, that's a good way to end the show. We'll, we, uh, we'll be back. We got a, It's going to be a fun summer. We're, we're, we're pretty close to having to do this thing every week, Chris. You ready for that? I, uh, the question is, is player three ready for that? Yeah, are they ready for that? 